sometimes there are hymns that do the same thing. Fairest Lord Jesus, number 15, just reminds us who Jesus Christ is. Let's sing it together. Fairest Lord Jesus, the second epistle of Peter. We're still in chapter 1, trying to make our way through chapter 1. Maybe this morning we'll even get to chapter 2. Don't hold your breath. Last week, after the service, someone said, you know, with Peter's emphasis on proper behavior, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 5, 
Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. And therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. With that emphasis on good works and proper behavior, someone said last week, boy, that sounds like James. Yes, it does. And it should, if you think about it from a historical perspective. Who were the three apostles in Jerusalem? Peter, John, and James. Peter, when he was in Galatia with Paul, was eating with the Gentiles, but then we read that some came from James, and so he dissembled. But then, who is the audience that both James and Peter are writing to? Well, that's the same audience. They're both writing to the diaspora, to the scattered Jews who have a background, a history in the law, in performance-based religion, And then both of them are calling that audience to Jesus Christ and bringing them along in greater and greater levels of freedom so that they will understand the freedom they have in Christ. So it's not surprising, is my point, not surprising that Peter would sound a lot like James. As the weeks go on, we're going to see Peter sound a lot like Jude. He and Jude are going to say several of the same things. Well, who is Jude? Well, that's the brother of Jesus, who is also a Jew, who is writing to the Jews. And so it's just not surprising that the language is very, very similar. The audience is the same, and Peter, John, and James are all in Jerusalem. And so, of course, they would share a common thinking about these things. Does that make sense? By saying that, do I avoid any controversies like we had in James? (laughs) Okay. And then when we finished last week, Micah came up to me and said, how can you be so cool? And I said, oh. Is that what he said? That's not what he said. No. I just wanted to see if you were paying attention. He came up to me and he said, verse 10 and verse 11 say, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And I read and understood that contextually as being Part of Peter encouraging good works. That if you act this way, if you are increasing in these qualities, the same way it's going to guarantee or secure or make sure your calling and election, in the same way it's going to supply you the abundant opening into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So he asked me afterwards, well, what about the calling and the choosing? Is it possible that the calling and choosing is what makes the way for our entrance into the eternal kingdom? And we had a little conversation about it. And I said, well, I think if you look back contextually, the closest referent is the activity, but I'm perfectly okay with that reading. If you want to read it in such a way that you say that it is the calling and the choosing that leads the way into the entrance into an eternal kingdom, I think that's fair, but I am still convinced that what Peter is saying through this entire section is behave accordingly, behave appropriately, because in that way, you are not short-sighted, you're not blind, you make your calling and election sure, and in this way is an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I thought I'd say that for anybody else who had the same thought. I don't object to that reading, but I think contextually, it's more consistent to believe that what Peter was saying is your good behavior, your good works make these things a surety for you. Does that make sense? Okay, then we can move on. Verse 12, therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this tent, this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. When did that happen? When was it made clear to him by Jesus that his time of departure was, was at hand, that he was going to be leaving his earthly dwelling, knowing that the time of his death was advancing quickly. He wanted to make sure and remind his audience time and time again of how important the finished work of Christ was and how important their behavior and reaction was. But where exactly do we find Jesus make reference to Peter's death? Well, it's in the book of John. It's in the Gospel of John. Keep your finger there in Peter. And we're going to go to John 21, the very last chapter of the Gospel of John. So turn there. I like this chapter a lot because in this chapter we find a whole lot of really important theological information and implications. For instance... Jesus appears at the Sea of Galilee, and his disciples recognize that it's Jesus. Now, this is after he has died. This is after he has resurrected. It is apparently during the 50 days prior to the ascension. And yet, after the ascension, Jesus appears some 60 years later to John on the Isle of Patmos. Now, why is that important? Well, because there are people who say that what we believe about the return of Christ eschatologically, that he's coming back for his church, and then there's going to be seven years of tribulation, then he's going to come back the Armageddon, that's going to happen, then he's going to set up the kingdom, and that lasts for a thousand years. The typical question that people 
ask in order to kind of discount that thinking is they say, well, how many second comings are there? Because after all, you're saying he comes, and then there's a gap of time, and then he comes again, and then he establishes, come on, it's called the second coming, so how many second comings are there? Let's think about that for a moment. How many first comings were there? Because Jesus not only appears in the Old Testament as a Christophany, but then he is born to Mary, and he's on the planet for roughly 33 years, and then he dies, and then he ascends to the Father because he told Mary, don't touch me, I haven't yet ascended to the Father. And then he comes into the room where Thomas is and says, touch me, go ahead and touch me. Okay, where's he been? He's been to the Father. And then he came back, and then he appeared, and then he appeared, and then he appeared. Paul gives us a list of all the various appearances that he can think of. And he appeared to 500 brethren, Paul says, the greater number of which are still alive. Go check with them. And so how many times did Jesus appear on the planet after his death? John's about to tell us this is the third time that he appeared to us. How many first comings are there? Well, we still call all of that the first coming, but then, as I mentioned, he's going to appear to John on the Isle of Patmos 60 years later. That's a gap of time between when he left the planet in the ascension and when he appears on the planet again. How many first comings are there? Okay, that's just one of the theological implications that we find in this chapter. We're also going to find Jesus come to Peter because Peter couldn't get to Jesus, come to Peter and restore him three times, because Peter had denied Christ three times. And Peter couldn't do anything to restore the relationship. Peter broke the relationship in his denial of Jesus. So Jesus comes to him. Why? Because Jesus chose him. And because Jesus chose him, he belongs to Jesus, Jesus was not going to allow him to continue in that state of separation from Christ. And so Jesus comes to Peter and restores him three times. Wonderful theology can grow out of that. Why is it that you were drawn to God? It had to be Christ that came to you. Because you couldn't get to him. You've broken the relationship. You've done all the sinning you can do. Okay, some of you maybe not all the sinning you could do. But you've done so much sinning that the relationship between you and a righteous holy God is completely abrogated. You are enemies. You're at enmity with each other. Well, then who can repair the relationship? You can't. Jesus came to you. Jesus drew you. He restored the relationship. Okay, well, that's also in this chapter. As we go through this chapter, we're going to see even how the rumor began that John wasn't going to die. And since it's John that's writing this, he can tell you first person, and that's how the rumor got started that I wasn't going to die. But Jesus didn't say I wasn't going to die. He just said, what is it to you if I keep him around longer than you? Well, you find that in here. You also find fishermen fishing. This is what they're good at. This is what they do for a living. This is what they've done all their life. Fishermen fishing. And they catch nothing. 
And then Jesus tells them to throw the net out the other side, and they catch in abundance. And then they get to the shore, and Jesus is cooking fish. So fish wasn't the issue. Fish isn't the question. But he had told these same fishermen, I'll make you fishers of men. How are they going to do that? The way Jesus says to do it. If they try it by their own power, their own activity, they're going to accomplish nothing. But if they fish the way Jesus says to fish, if you don't mind that analogy, then they're going to accomplish what he has set out for them to accomplish. Okay, that's all in this chapter. It's the last chapter of John, and there's all this really good stuff in here. So verse 1 of chapter 21 of John says, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee. Who are the sons of Zebedee? John and James. John, John, who's writing this, and his brother James. And two other of his disciples, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Then they said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. And when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus therefore said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. That shows you that Jesus is sovereign over fish. He even made fish get in the net. It's just the other side of the boat. If there weren't any fish on the left side, there's no fish on the right side. But do what I tell you to do, I'll fill your net. You can see the implications. So the disciple, therefore, that Jesus loved, that's John. You'll notice that John doesn't refer to himself in the first person anywhere. He always makes reference to himself as one of the sons of Zebedee or as the one that Jesus loved. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up. And drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread, 
and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now you know, I've talked about it often enough, that the word that he used here was, do you agape me? Are you sacrificially loving me? And he said to him, Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I, and he changed the word, you know that I phileo you. And he said, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agapao me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you, and this time he says, do you phileo me? He stepped to where Peter was. And he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So what did Jesus do right there? Three times he had predicted, before the cock crows, three times you're going to deny me. Jesus made sure that three times he professed his love and his willingness to sacrifice and his willingness to show brotherly kindness in the way that he tended the sheep that belonged to Christ Three times Jesus restored the relationship because three times Peter had broken the relationship. Verse 18, so truly, truly, I say to you, we read all that for context. Here's the part where Jesus predicts the death of Peter. Because remember, Peter wouldn't quite go as far as I sacrificially love you. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Then John tells us, now this he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. Okay, really, really interesting. The words, just as we read them here, translated from the Greek into English, don't tell us very much about it, but it is very obvious that Peter and John both got the message that Jesus was talking about, this is how you're going to die. You're going to get older, and when you are older, there are people who are going to gird you instead of you girding yourself. In other words, they're going to bind you, they're going to tie you up, they're going to take you to a place you don't want to go. And John and Peter both understood it as a reference to the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Now, according to best legend and best story, when it came time for Peter to be crucified, he said that it was too great an honor to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And so he was crucified upside down. To this day, you will still find crosses on their side that are referred to as St. Peter's Cross. 
That's where that comes from, the legend, the story, the, the best history that says that Peter was ultimately crucified and at that upside down. So then having spoken this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Okay, a minute ago it was, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Now I'm going to tell you the kind of death you're going to die. That's frightening. It would be real tempting to somebody as unstable as Peter has shown himself to be. It would be real tempting for Peter to go, oh, I didn't count on that. I wasn't planning on the dead part. I, I was thinking plenty of food, plenty of fish. You bring the kingdom. You're a great king. We all sit at your table. I wasn't planning on the untimely death thing. So Jesus gives him the command, follow me. Whatever it takes in your life, Peter, whatever you've got to go through, whatever you encounter, follow me. Stick with the way. Go by what I have taught you, what I have preached, what you have seen. The prophets have prophesied that I have fulfilled. Now that you know all that, regardless of how bad it gets or how threatening it looks, you follow me. I think that's good advice for all of us because it would certainly be easier these days to just say, okay, yes, I'm Christian, but, but I'm not real serious about it. I'm not real tied down to it. I could probably be talked out of it because if you do that, then the world is going to love you and they're going to embrace you and they're going to treat you kindly and you're going to have a, an easier life. But if you take a stand for Christ, a public stand for Christ, if you say, this is what I am, and this is what I'm about, and this is why I believe what I believe, and you can't shake me from it, life doesn't get easier. Life gets tougher, and yet the directive is, follow me. Notice he doesn't say, follow me unless, fill in the blank. Follow me unless it gets hard. Follow me unless it gets difficult. The command is, follow me. Now he's going to say it to Peter again in just a moment. Because Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So that's how John knows all this. He's eyewitness to the conversation. He heard what Jesus said and what Peter said. That's why he could be specific about the language of the conversation. Why he knew that Jesus predicted Peter's death. He knows all that because he's following the two of them, because naturally they're right there on the seashore. They're all gathered. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper. Okay, now we know that's John, who had leaned back on Jesus at the Lord's Supper. And he's the one who said, Lord, who is the one who will betray you? So now we definitely know it's John. Peter, therefore, seeing him, seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this guy? Okay, you've told me that I'm going to be sacrificed. You've told me that I'm going to die a death that's going to be tough, that I'm not going to enjoy, that I'm not looking forward to in any way. But here's John over here. What about him? Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You 
follow me. Another really important principle. In your following Christ, you don't get to look horizontally. You don't get to look at other people and say, well, well what about him? He's Christian and he drives a big fancy car. I'm Christian. I should get a big fancy car. Now, notice when they look horizontally, they almost always look at people doing better than them. They virtually never look at somebody who's, who's sick or ailing or broke or just lost their job, and they go, well, what about him? I should get a little bit of that. No, it's always, well, he's doing better, and, and he's a Christian, and, and why don't I get that? The answer is always, what is that to you? Follow me, because your focus is him. The center of your attention, the centrality of Christianity is him. And your relationship is with him. It doesn't matter what he's doing with anybody else or in anybody else's life. The command to you is follow him. So he says to Peter, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. So there's the rumor that John was just going to live forever. And John, by the way, ends up being the last remaining apostle. He lived longer than the others. But the rumor started spreading that he was not going to die. So John wanted to take a moment and squash that rumor. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So this is the disciple who bears witness of these things. John saying, I was there, first person, I saw it, I know about it. I wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that were written. Okay, now go back to Peter. Remembering that Peter and John have that relationship, have that closeness, are that familiar with each other, remained in Jerusalem together then you're going to hear Peter say very, very similar things. He's going to say, we are eyewitnesses. I was there. I saw it. I'm not making stuff up. I'm not creating fairy tales. I'm telling you what I actually saw and I actually witnessed. Starting in 1 Peter chapter 13, and I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call to mind these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. In other words, we didn't get together in a room and make up these stories about a risen Christ. This is one of the most essential elements in examining the testimony of the witnesses. Whenever we talk about 
whether the Bible is credible, whether the New Testament writers are credible, whether the story of Jesus' resurrection is credible, it always comes down to if you examine the witnesses, the eyewitnesses, the first-hand witnesses, do they come across as credible witnesses or can you find holes in their story? Can you find them perjuring themselves? I'm using a lot of legal language just to impress George. Can you find any place where you would say, well, now that they've said that and there's this huge disagreement with things that he said earlier, well, then how do I believe this is true? Are the witnesses credible? Peter says, I'm an eyewitness. And I expect George would agree that in any kind of court proceeding, especially any criminal proceeding, you can't get better testimony than an eyewitness. Somebody who was actually there, who actually saw it, who can testify. I was there. I saw it. I know what I'm talking about. You you don't do better than that. Well, at the end of the book of John, John took the time to say, I saw it. I'm an eyewitness. That's why I wrote these things. I wrote them down because I personally saw it. Peter here is saying, we did not devise cleverly constructed tales. Think about that logically for just a moment. Because Jesus died, 50 days later, it was Peter who stood up at the day of Pentecost at risk of his own life and testified, Jesus is risen. And on top of that, he said to his audience, and you killed the prince of life. He even took the time to say, you're wicked. With wicked hands, you slew the prince of life. Okay, that's all. A lot of bravery out of a guy who 50 days earlier, three times swore and said, I don't know him. 50 days later, he stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached, you with wicked hands killed the prince of life at risk of his own life. Okay, well, that gives you the impression that something happened that changed that man. Something occurred in those 50 days that changed him and gave him the courage to actually stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach that. What was the thing that occurred? What happened? What changed him? Well, either the apostles all got in a room together and said, okay, guys, we've backed the wrong horse. The guy we were with died. He's been killed by the Jews and the Romans. Our whole life that we've devoted ourselves to for the last three and a half years is awash now and uh, we gotta quick make up a story so as long as we're all in the room here together let's see if we can't construct something about uh what do you what do you got john you got anything how about he raised again yeah that's it we're gonna tell people that he came out of the grave and then somebody quick since we're constructing this story Somebody quick in the next three days, get down there and steal the body. I know that the tomb is sealed. I know it's got a Roman guard on it. But somebody get over there and steal the body of Jesus so that we can say to people, oh yeah, he rose again. That either happened and then that lying meeting When they got together and constructed their carefully, craftily devised tale, 
That moment gave Peter the courage to stand up against the Jewish leaders at risk of his own life and wind up in jail as a result. He had the courage to do that because of a lie, which to me seems rather untenable, that he would have gotten together with the guys and said, okay, here's the lie we're going to tell. And then he had the courage to go confront the Jews about it, even knowing what they could do to him. Or Jesus actually got up. Jesus actually resurrected. And the resurrected Christ actually appeared to them, according to John at the end of the book of John. That was the third time he appeared to them. Once he appeared behind a locked door when they were all in a room together, and he appears to them. And so that either is the true testimony of the genuine witnesses, and it actually occurred, or everything we know about Christianity to this day, every good thing that Christianity has done for the last 2,000 years, all the people who have been drawn to Christianity and lived their lives and sacrificed their lives for the sake of Christianity, all did it because of something that is based in a lie. You get it? Peter says, we're not lying. That's the whole point. He starts with, we're not passing on craftily devised tales. I'm an eyewitness. I was actually there. I actually saw all this stuff. And that's why I'm so stirred up to remind you about it over and over and over again. So that when I'm not here anymore, when I die, you're still going to remember it. Because I've said it and I've said it and I've said it so that you remember these stories, so that you remember this theology, so that you remember what Christ accomplished, because I'm not always going to be here to remind you. But it's important that you know that we, verse 16, did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Okay, now what is he talking about? Turn to Matthew 17, if you would. You can keep your finger there in Peter. Turn to Matthew 17. Right at the beginning of the chapter, we find the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. It's important enough that all three synoptics have accounts of it. Matthew's is just the one I chose. But who goes up on the mountain with Jesus? Peter, John, and James. Peter, John, and James. Okay, let's try this one again, okay, as a group. So who went up on the mountain with Jesus? There you are. I was wondering if you were still tracking with me. Peter, John, and James. What a surprise. They're going to be the eyewitnesses to what we see on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's why Peter can say, we saw it. We saw his majesty. We saw the revelation of who he really is. And I'm not just making this stuff up. If you're going to tell a story... Like he got up from the dead and he's alive and living and vital and breathing and cooking fish by the sea. If you're going to tell that story at risk of your own life, are you really going to add things like, and I was a complete mess up. Everything I ever did 
sandal in mouth, would Peter really admit? I mean, wouldn't Mark, who was probably tutored by Peter, wouldn't he sugarcoat the story a little bit? You know, Peter didn't really deny him. I mean, Jesus said, you're going to deny me, but he didn't really deny him. He just, he just looked the other way, you know, but he didn't deny. Peter's not going to go into such detail. If you read the book of Mark, it's the shortest of the four Gospels, you read more about Peter's failure in Mark than any of the other Gospels. Would Peter really do that if he was constructing a lie? No. That's not the way men work. He would have said, and I was the most faithful of them. I was right there front and center. Jesus said to me, you're the rock. And I said, I'm Catholic. And <laughs> never mind. It's my own private joke there. Peter would have written a more glowing report of himself if he was a liar who knew he was lying. But if he knew that Jesus raised, and he knew that Jesus said, follow me, and he knew that Jesus had this revelation of power and might and authority, then he's going to write what actually happened. He's going to stick to the true story. So here's what happened. According to Matthew 17.1, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. I don't know how they recognized it as Moses and Elijah. But apparently it was obviously Moses and Elijah. They're talking with Jesus. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter, Mr. Sandal in mouth, Mr. Always get it wrong, Peter answered and said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Man, it's a good thing you brought us up here. You probably wouldn't know what to do otherwise if we weren't here. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles, temporary dwelling places, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's basically equating the three of them. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. See the distinction? Not Moses, not Elijah. This one, Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hear him. Okay, well that had to leave an impression. Because the very next thing that happened is, and when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. Well, yeah. This doesn't happen daily. This is not a regular occurrence. There's a man who you know, who you've been walking with and eating with and talking with, and suddenly he's shining bright like the sun. And then Moses and Elijah are there with him. And then God says, that's my son. Hear him. Well, yeah, you're on your face. You're getting right down on your face. And Jesus, notice, came to them and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. 
And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Why? Hear him. Okay, so what's the importance of Moses and Elijah? Well, the entire Old Testament is referred to as the Law and the Prophets. Law and the Prophets, you see that all the way through the New Testament. Who are the very embodiment of the Law and the Prophets? Well, the Law came by Moses. Elijah was the greatest of Israel's prophets. There you go. you got the Law. you got the Prophets. You've got the whole of the Old Testament in type, in figure, in Moses and Elijah standing there. And what does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Moses and Elijah are gone. So Jesus is walking around saying things like, you've heard it said. And then he quotes from the law and the prophets. He quotes right from Moses. He quotes right from the law. You have heard it said. Then he says, but I say. Sometimes he says something that's, that's a raising up of the original law. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Everybody would agree. Yeah, you're right. Don't commit adultery. That's in the law. Don't do that. But I say, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty as an adulterer. Okay, he raised the bar. Where does he get the authority to do that? How does he raise that bar? Well, because he's the one who expects to be listened to. But then sometimes he says the opposite of the law. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. They would all go, yep, we've heard that, absolutely. You hit me, I'm going to hit you. You take my eye, I'm taking your eye. Tooth for tooth, I'm knocking you out. But I say, if he hits you on your left cheek, give him your right cheek also. Okay, there's simply no way that you can read an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and deduce from that that what he means is turn the other cheek. There's no way to make that connection. Why did Jesus say the direct opposite of what the law said? Because he's the new lawgiver who was predicted by Moses that there was another lawgiver coming and to him would be the gathering of the people. He's the one that God said, this is my son, listen to him. And so he has the authority to say, you've heard it said, but I say, and we are to listen to him. Which is why he can say, look, all of the law, all of the prophets are wrapped up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. In this is all the law and the prophets. Right there. It's all wrapped up. Where does he get that authority? Well, he's the one you have to listen to. Which, by the way, if he is the very son of God, and if he is the one who has all the authority, if he is the only one who has that kind of majestic ability to say, listen to me, then he has every right to say to you, follow me. Amen. Wherever it takes you, wherever it leads you, whatever you got to go through, follow me, because I'm the only one in heaven, hell, or earth who knows what he's talking about. Because everybody else, check me on this, is crazy. But Jesus knows heaven like it's the back of his hand. He talked about eternity in first person language. He knows what he's talking about and says, and I give those that the Father gave me since before the foundation of the world, I give them eternal life. The eternal one talks about eternality and talks about people that were given to him by the Father. Okay, that's authority. That's somebody who knows what he's talking about. That's somebody who you couldn't understand any of that. You couldn't know any of that unless he told you. 
And he's telling you. And then he's saying, now follow me. I think we can add to that. Now listen to me. Because we've got the authority of God going, listen to him. So that's why he could say things like, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yeah, there's those ten commandments. Yeah, there's all the rules of the law. There's all the Old Testament. But when I shed my blood, it's the blood of the new covenant. And he said things like, I give you a new command, that you love one another. And then he says, and if you love me, keep what I say. Okay, go back to Peter. Because now Peter's going to talk about that. And that's all the background for Peter saying this, starting at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. It said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, he's talking about, I was on the mount. John said I was. I'm telling you I was. I'm an eyewitness. I saw these things. You really ought to pay attention to what I'm telling you because I'm an eyewitness of the glory of Christ. And when I tell you, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and you should be paying attention to him. I'm not just making this up. I saw him transfigured, and I saw the cloud of glory, and I heard a voice come out of the cloud saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Peter's saying, look, I, I don't know what else to tell you. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I fell on my face. I'm the one that wanted to build three tabernacles. I'm the one that tried to equate Elijah and Moses with Jesus. I was there. And I'm telling you, this is what happened. The majestic glory said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we, ourselves, Peter, John, and James, we heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have a prophetic word made more sure. That's an interesting phrase. Some of your translations say we have a more sure word of prophecy. What's Peter saying? Well, Peter is saying the whole of the Old Testament all points forward to somebody. The Old Testament says someone's coming. The Old Testament talks about Messiah, talks about Messiah's death, talks about Messiah's resurrection, talks about where Messiah will be born, talks about some of the miracles Messiah is going to do, talks about the fact that Messiah is going to be undermined by one of his own disciples, one who eats bread at his table, that he's going to die even the implication is that he's going to be crucified. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. When that was written by Zechariah, crucifixion didn't even exist yet. 
and yet it's predicted in the Old Testament. So there's all these prophetic things that are all pointing forward to the coming of Messiah and the accomplishing of the very things that Jesus accomplished. And so Peter could say, when we were on the mountain and when we heard that, when we saw the demonstration, when we heard the voice and we recognized Jesus as the Christ, the one who we're to listen to, and, and Moses and Elijah are gone and there's just him, all of that gives us the surety that all the prophecies are being satisfied and fulfilled in him. And we eyewitnessed these prophecies being fulfilled. So we have a more sure and certain word of prophecy because prophecy pointed to him and then we saw him. And let me put it this way. Prophecy says... Christ is coming back. Prophecy says he's coming to get his church. If he shows up today, won't that pretty much solidify your faith? Won't that pretty much make you go, it's true. It's all true. Every part of it that I devoted my life to is true. Won't you be satisfied that Everything you've believed, everything you've read, everything in the Bible is absolutely accurate when he finally returns to fulfill that prophecy? Well, of course you will. That's what Peter's saying. That we have a more sure and certain word of prophecy because the whole of the Old Testament, remember that's the only Bible that they had at the time. The New Testament was still being written just as letters that were being scattered around that hadn't been collected, codified, hadn't been put into the canon yet. And so what they have for Scripture is what we would refer to as the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there's all this prophecy about Christ coming. And now Christ has come, and it's been verified by the majesty on high that this is him. This is my son. I'm well pleased in him. So Peter can say, man, we're, we're sure. <laughs> we're confident. We found the right one. Well, the right one found us. We're confident about this. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Okay, so what does a lamp do in a dark place? Well, it lightens it. So he's saying the prophetic word, the scripture, what we would call the Old Testament, you would do well if you paid attention to it because as you read it, it brings enlightenment to you. And notice how you're described, like a dark place. It takes the light of the word. It takes the light of the spirit to enlighten you to these realities. So you do well to pay attention to it. Which, let me just mention, there are some churches and some denominations that identify themselves as New Testament churches that don't read all that stuff in the Old Testament. And yet Peter in the New Testament is arguing, just as Paul did, that you really should pay attention to the Old Testament because, as Paul said, these things are written for our learning, for our admonition. Peter says you should pay attention to it because it's light in a dark place. So even the New Testament says, read your Old Testament. 
And when you read the Old Testament, you're enlightened by it because you start seeing the connections. You start seeing how God dealt with Israel. You start seeing the prophecies of the Messiah to come and the fulfilled work, but that he's got to die in order to do it. And then he's going to be raised again. And then God's going to be satisfied in that work. As you read the Old Testament, you start seeing the types and the shadows and the figures, the sacrifices, the priesthood. You see all of that and you see how it's satisfied, how it's fulfilled in Christ. And as you see that, you see that the prophetic word is made more sure, more certain in your heart and in your understanding. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. I think that's a direct reference to Christ. Until the day dawns means, well, what happens during the day? The dark goes away and the light comes. And then the morning star, Christ, takes up residence, arises in your heart. But know this first. As you're reading it, as you're looking at the prophetic word, know this first. That no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The translation interpretations, some translations look for other ways of expressing the Greek word he's saying essentially it's from no man's origin no man made it up because he goes on to say for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God okay the Old Testament I don't know how much of this you know I just gotta say it quickly the Old Testament is written by prophets across the board. The Old Testament was written by prophets. And there were 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there were no prophets in Israel. As a consequence, even the items of the temple that had been restored, they put into storage because they said, we don't know what to do with them until a prophet tells us. We need a prophet. Israel was guided by prophets. But for 400 years, there was no prophet. And then Matthew starts, the New Testament starts with John the Baptist, and there's a classic Old Testament prophet among them. And what is he doing? He's making the way straight and pointing to Christ. So then Christ comes, and he's prophet, priest, and king, satisfying and fulfilling all those Old Testament types. Okay, the amount of prophecy in the Bible between a quarter and a third of the whole Bible is prophetic in nature. So obviously, if you're going to really study the Bible, you should study prophecy. It's just part of the Bible. And as Peter continues writing, it's going to become more prophetic through the last two chapters of this book. But he wants us to know that if prophecy works, it's evidence, it's proof that that couldn't have been something men did. Through the years... We have all seen supposed prophets rise up, fake prophets, fortune tellers, people that gaze into crystal, crystal balls or will talk to your dead loved ones for you. How many people here remember Gene Dixon? Yeah, okay, you just showed your age. Um, yeah, she used to be on the tabloid papers when you were checking out the supermarket. 
Jean Dixon's supposed big prophecy was that she came semi-close, kind of, to predicting the assassination of Kennedy. Well, that put her on the map, you know. How many remember Nostradamus? How many remember him first person? How many of you? Uh, now you've really shown your age. And you're Russian. And, I mean, Nostradamus, you read the quatrains of Nostradamus, you read them, they're pretty vague. But then things happen and people go, oh, that's what that was. That's this. And they plug the quatrains into things that actually occurred in time so that they can say, oh, he knew stuff. Oh, he was a prophet. Okay, according to the Old Testament, if a prophet prophesies and gets it wrong, false prophet, don't listen to him anymore. Put him out of the camp, false prophet. Okay, so to be a genuine prophet, to be an Old Testament-style prophet, you had to be right all the time across the board, and the only way people can do that is for the Spirit of God to speak through them. That's what Peter said. He said, as you're reading the prophecies, as you're being amazed by all these things that were written about, let's say, Christ, all these things were written about Messiah, like I said, that he would be pierced before crucifixion even existed, that he was going to die and that he was going to raise again, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. I mean, all of these little prophecies that all came true, as you see that, you should recognize that's the very hand of God. That's God saying that. He's telling the future in advance. He knows the end from the beginning, and he's taken the time to tell us what the future is going to be. Men didn't do that. Human beings couldn't do that. The best of men who have ever attempted it have only gotten a small, small fraction of things semi-kind of right. But the prophecies of the Bible stand untarnished. And I've spent a lot of years, that was the first thing that attracted me to the Bible was prophecy. I've taught prophecy extensively. If you want to go on our website, there was a five-day prophecy thing I did down in Texas. I'm fascinated by prophecy. So when I came across the idea that God was sovereign in salvation... That didn't even disturb me. I was like, well, he's sovereign over everything that happens. You can prove that from prophecy. So we might as well be sovereign over salvation because he's certainly in charge of everything else. Because he says what's going to happen and then it, it happens. How? How? How did Isaiah predict Cyrus the Mede by name 150 years in advance of him even coming to the throne? How did he do that? Cyrus wasn't even born yet. And yet he names him by name. And God says that through him, he's going to deliver the people of Israel back to Jerusalem so they can rebuild the temple. Then history happens. And that's exactly what happened. Yet Isaiah said it 150 years in advance. How? How does he do that? Because we have the sure and certain word of prophecy. But know this first. That no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one man's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will. But men were moved by the Holy Spirit and so they spoke from God. If that's true, when I teach on the validity, the trustworthiness of the Bible... The, the verity of the Bible, you can trust it, it's, it's the word of God. 
when I'm called on to talk about that and prove that, I make a beeline to prophecy. Because if the multiple prophecies, remember what I said, a quarter to a third of the book is prophetic. And if those prophecies can be proven to be true, then men didn't write this book. This is, in fact, what prophets wrote who spoke through the Spirit of God. And if that's true, then the God of this Bible and the Christ of this Bible has every right to lay himself on you and say, you're mine, now follow me. Listen to me. Life isn't always going to be easy, but don't turn away. Persevere, follow me. And that has tremendous validity if the rest of it's true. I can save you the trouble. I can save you the work. I'm 30 years into this. It's true. You can do the work yourself, but after you do, you're going to go, doggone it, Jim was right. Because it's true. Questions? Next week, we'll get to chapter 2. We've made it to chapter 2 of Peter. Any questions? Any comments? Anything to add? Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.